I read something I found quite interesting this week, and I kept returning to it because it captivated me so much. This is what I read. Researchers with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology are asking Chicago area businesses and homes to turn off or limit exterior lights this week, as bright lights can endanger the thousands of birds that are expected to move through the region on their migrations to the south. According to the BirdCast website, a lights out alert has been issued for the Chicago area for Sunday night, that's tonight, and into Monday morning. Large numbers of birds, sometimes exceeding 16,000 per hour, are expected to migrate over the city of Chicago between 11 p.m. Sunday night and 6 a.m. Monday. Bright lights, the article says, attract and disorient birds that fly during the overnight hours, potentially causing serious or fatal injuries for birds when they strike buildings. Businesses and homeowners are asked to turn off all non-essential lighting during that time to help protect the birds as they make their way through the area. I should tell you that we have two lighting things that are funny at church right now. One is that the lights on this side of the outside of the church are not working. We're fixing them. So we've got that covered. But then last week we had brand new lights put on that side of the church that are extremely bright. But tonight I'm going to turn them off. I'll, I'll try. But I found, this, I found this so interesting. And I think it's likely for a number of reasons. First, I've always been fascinated with the way that light impacts the night the way that light impacts the night. And I've told you all this before. The invention of ways to produce artificial light, though, has, has been a huge game changer for the ways that we all live. For us, we take it for granted a little bit, right? Light brings safety. It brings the ability to work beyond dark, especially as our days get, as our days get shorter. In developing countries now, light is seen as one of those key items that, that if people are able to get light, it can, it can completely change their lives due to increased education and possibilities. But I've also looked at the ways that light actually reduces what we can see, ironically, right? That, that it can reduce our ability to see and experience the cosmos. The, the stars seem to disappear completely when we're in an urban environment. The closer we get to a city, right, the less stars we can see. And so, yes, I'm intrigued by the various issues surrounding light. But this lights out alert was something completely new to me. I, I hadn't seen it or thought about it before. And while we all learn about animal migrations as children and particularly about birds flying south for winter, I was drawn to this image of these birds making their way south. Birds that are being tracked so well by researchers to the point that they know when this large flock or the series of flocks is going to make their way right through our region. And this journey they take over and over again, guided by their instincts, by the shortening of days, by the weather, by all sorts of, frankly, very mysterious things to me, this journey they're on has to take them through this place, bright lights, bright lights. The article reads that bright lights attract and disorient the birds, potentially causing serious or fatal injuries for the birds when they strike buildings. Friends, we're not so different from birds. Like the birds making their way south, especially these ones tonight, we too are attracted by bright lights. 
sometimes not even realizing it. We're disoriented. We're drawn away from our central purpose in life, our, our created purpose to be followers of the one who created us. Attracted to other things, things that, like the light, things that can be good, that, that have great good potential, but things that can also disorient us. Our gospel text this morning that Walt read for us opens with Jesus walking with his disciples, and they're on a long walk. They're going to a remote area, and you can envision this group of folks who have been spending essentially all their time together, taking this long, dusty walk, likely several days into this remote region on the edge of of the um, civilized area. It's hot, it's dusty, and they're walking along and who knows what their conversations are like. I like to think about what they would be like, but, but who knows? But we know at this point, Jesus decides to ask a question of them all. Who do people say that I am? They're walking along in an ordinary walk, and this question comes up. If you've ever been around a dinner table with Tom Kelly, you may have experienced his thoughtful questions to those gathered. And, you know... I always know they're coming, and I think that they're a tool. We haven't talked about this, but I think they're a tool to get to know people, but often they're also, from what I can tell, a way to stimulate thoughtful discussion, to to gather various different perspectives that might not otherwise come out in the natural flow of conversation. And so, like one of those discussion and thought-stimulating questions from Tom, Jesus uses his question to get the disciples thinking and talking, to verbalize the things that are probably going on in their head, to tease them out. And so they offer their observations and answers that really, when they're gathered in in this way in the gospel lesson, are, are likely a pretty good summary of what people would have said at that time in terms of, of answering that question. And so they answer. They say, well, some say John the Baptist and it made sense because he had been this contemporary figure who was different, who was, who was trying to point people in different ways. And there were stories and rumors going around about were they the same person? Elijah they offer, right? Elijah, interestingly, Elijah, when you read about and learn about Elijah, Elijah was seen as a precursor of the coming Messiah. And so this made sense. And still others, they answer, suggest that you're one of the prophets, And again, while we have this limited glimpse at the conversation, we can imagine that there was probably more to it. They might have suggested specific other prophets from the Old Testament because people at that time were thinking, yeah, he looks like he could be one of these these prophets. But then Jesus asks this dramatic question. It's the turning point in this gospel and really the turning point in all of the gospels. The question, he points to them, to his friends, the ones who've been with him, and he says, who do you say that I am? 
He redirects the question from this more general, who do the masses, the people around us, the rumor mill, who do the people say that I am? And now he's asking his followers, the ones that are covered with that same dust that he's covered on this road, the ones who at this point have already seen what Jesus has done. They've seen him performing miracles after miracle. They've listened to his teachings. They've followed him wherever he's gone. They dropped everything to follow him. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. He answers Jesus and he says these famous words. He says, you are the Messiah. The Christos, that's the Greek word for it. The Christos, this is where we get Christ. He says, you're the Christ. Now, this word isn't used very much in Mark's gospel. In fact, it's used at the very beginning of Mark's gospel to to introduce the gospel, saying this is the good news. That's what gospel means. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And then all the way through, never again does that word come up until right now. And so you almost have, from a literary point of view, the picture of the Messiah being painted all throughout those miracles and all of that. And then here in this moment, they declare, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And this word was a powerful one for the Jews. It was central to their religion and to their longing and their expectation. Now, a lot of times we misunderstood why Jews were reluctant to see Jesus as the Messiah. And one reason for this is that there were a lot of different images or expectations at that time about what the Messiah would be. I don't know about you, but oftentimes we've been taught, I was taught that, that the major reason for this was that Jesus was ex- or the Jews expected the Messiah to be like a warrior coming in on a horse and who would overthrow the Roman powers. That's what I was taught. But it turns out that While that was true for some people, it wasn't the only view of the Messiah. There were actually a lot of different expectations that people had, and that was part of the confusion, right? Some people were expecting that the Messiah couldn't come until there was peace in the land, and after peace had been restored, then this Messiah figure would come. And so this word was kind of loaded, Messiah, because the expectations varied greatly, with all these various expectations, varied as they were, universally, this figure of Jesus, the way that Jesus was, wasn't really what they were expecting. Indeed, Jesus is much more than the kind of Messiah that the people were expecting. But this is what gets Peter so upset. Jesus doesn't deny that he's the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, But what he says is shocking to Peter because Jesus, right in that moment, says that his status as the Messiah is bound up, bound up with the cross, with suffering, with death. It's bound up. And more than that, Jesus says right after that, he says right after it, he says that to follow him is to follow him where he will go to follow him to the cross. That's what gets Peter so upset. Because they've got this image of what the Messiah is going to do and be, and their image of the Messiah, no matter how you slice it, shouldn't involve suffering and death. But Jesus not only says that it will, he says, not just for me. 
but for you. Theologian and activist Daniel Berrigan has a, has a pretty dramatic quote about this. He puts it this way, and he, he repeated this a lot during his, during his ministry. He says, if you're going to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. It's pretty intense. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is the, the central question of the gospel, the question upon which everything else that will happen hinges. This question is bound up with the cross and with suffering and with death. How many of us would follow Jesus? Contemporary theologian Richard Rohr often points out, he says, Jesus never says, worship me. He always says, follow me. That's all he asks. In our text this morning, though, Jesus makes it clear that if you're going to follow him, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross. And again, when it comes to the cross, the the disciples would have known what he was talking about. Well, they would have known what he was talking about by mentioning the cross. They would have known what crosses were for. They were for death, and they were also for suffering. Those early followers of Jesus, they knew what suffering was, but they would know even more deeply what it meant to sacrifice. And they and many other Christians have known and experienced what it means to suffer alongside Christ. Early Christians experienced intense persecution, And throughout history, we've seen that when people follow Jesus and do the things that Jesus did and go to the places in society where Jesus went, they come to expect persecution. This is especially true among those who take the side of the poor and the marginalized. But this is not the only type of taking up the cross. Taking up our cross may involve giving of ourselves in different ways. Caring for someone, an aging parent or spouse or family member. Agonizing over the addictions of a child or a loved one and trying at all costs to help them. Walking alongside someone in their own suffering, even though it brings pain for you. These can feel like a cross, and these can feel like the world coming down upon us. Or maybe you're called upon to take up the cross by what Jesus calls dying to yourself, by letting unhealthy patterns fall away, the the distractions, the, the bright lights that attract your attention away and disorient you from being a follower of Jesus by examining your life to see what those bright lights might be. The bright lights, perhaps, of greed, lust, ambition, vanity, resentment. The bright lights that draw us in but make it harder to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. And then there's this other bright light, this other distraction, this attraction toward the idea that we can live a life without suffering. This is perhaps one of the most attractive bright lights. But in this text, Jesus makes it clear that following him doesn't mean avoiding suffering. But following Jesus means that even in our suffering, whatever that may be, 
we truly experience what it means to follow Jesus, and we experience God's joy more deeply. Experiencing suffering in life now frees us from being held hostage to what the world thinks and tells us that life should be. Easy, satisfying, comfortable, perfect. We're all bombarded by it, right? In advertising images, on television, and in movies. But especially now, I think our youngest generations are unfairly presented with images of inauthentic perfection. An image that needs a reality check. And so, letting go of this need to live without suffering and to, and to live without the need to hide our suffering, this bright light of attraction, letting go of this need frees us to experience the joy of knowing that even in our suffering, we're on the right path, that following Jesus, knowing we're not alone, and that Jesus is with you, and that there are others with you, others who see you beyond your suffering, but who also see you in and with your suffering, and that Jesus will be with you through it all. Friends, there are so many things in life that can be these crosses that we need to bear. There are things that test our patience, things that make it hard for us to be ones who follow. And taking up our cross, denying our urges to give in to the world will mean different things for each of us as we seek to follow. Letting go, perhaps for you, of the urges to lash out against people. A way of denying yourself. Releasing the need to compare ourselves to others. A way of denying yourself. Refusing to accept the world's images of success or happiness or perfection a way of denying yourself. Choosing to resist the temptation to be right all the time, a way of denying yourself. That's the journey. That's the journey. Wherever you are in your life, that's the journey. And these questions for each of us, who do you say that I am? And are you willing to take up your cross, to acknowledge those things, to take up your cross and follow Jesus? This invitation of Jesus is an invitation into wholeness, oneness, with this one that Peter declares is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who suffers with us and the one who invites us to follow. Friends, that's what discipleship means. That's what discipleship is. This is what it means to be open to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to suffer alongside Jesus. And this is why Peter was so upset with Jesus. It does seem scandalous for Jesus to essentially be inviting us into his death and to our own. But my friends, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When we follow Jesus to the cross, carrying our own crosses, acknowledging our own suffering, all of this in the midst of a world of bright lights, bright lights that are attracting us and drawing us to things that look good, maybe too good to be real. When we follow Jesus to the cross, we follow Jesus the Messiah to the newness of God's promises, and we follow Jesus, the Messiah, to the resurrection, the ultimate newness of conquering death and conquering suffering. 
We experience God's abundant grace, God's promises of new beginnings, and God's overcoming of even our own crosses. This is what's waiting for us on the other side of our suffering. And so it is. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to a life of following him with our lives, with all of who we are. And it's an invitation into the joy-filled, joyful experience of a fresh beginning in the good news of Jesus. Navigating the bright lights of the world. Perhaps our discipleship begins today or really every day, again, and anew, with expectations of God's presence with us, looking for God, being aware of God, ready to be surprised, flying forward. John O'Donohue puts the journey this way. He writes, When the heart is ready for a fresh beginning, unforeseen things can emerge. And in a sense, this is exactly what a beginning does. It's an opening for surprises. Surrounding the intention and the act of beginning, there are always exciting possibilities. Such beginnings have their own mind, and they invite and unveil new gifts and arrivals in one's life. Beginnings, he writes, are new horizons that want to be seen. They are not regressions or repetitions. Somehow they win clearance and become fiercely free of the grip of the past. What is the new horizon in you that wants to be seen? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.